Imagine learning in a small group intimate setting while exploring unique European locations. EU Vet CE Experiences offers race-approved CE seminars that combine half-day lectures with time to relax and discover captivating cultures. The CE sessions are delivered in English, allowing you to elevate your career while vacationing with loved ones. Experience the perfect blend of learning and luxury at EU Vet CE Experiences interactive seminars in hand-picked European destinations. Elevate your knowledge and recharge simultaneously. Visit euveterinaryce.com to learn more. I was told in the interview process, quote unquote, that I would be taking a place away from a man who would be supporting his family with that income and that I had better be sure and give back to my profession. That was Dr. Jenny Bishop. And veterinary school admissions were quite different in the late 1970s. So were the views of female veterinarians in practice, as you'll soon find out as Dr. Bishop talks about her early years as a clinician. If you watch the YouTube version of this episode, you will see my aghast facial expressions. And yes, I left the long pauses of my shock. But Dr. Bishop indeed took that admission panel seriously and has been determined to give back to the profession. She has a fascinating career journey, and currently her role at Royal Canaan is spent dedicated to helping the mental well-being of those in our profession. It's my honor to bring you Dr. Bishop. When did you know you wanted to go into the veterinary profession? Well, I went into college thinking pre-med, and after two years, I had decided on wildlife management, uh, ecology, that sort of thing, and it was funny because the year I was supposed to go work in Glacier National Park, I got mono, so I couldn't spend my summer in Glacier. Uh, I had spent the previous summer in... um, Abiquiu, New Mexico, which is near a national forest. Anyway, so I was really sad about that. And I thought, well, probably a veterinary medicine might help uh, me learn something about the care of wildlife, you know, mammals, ruminants, that sort of thing. So I went and applied that summer to be a kennel girl at a, at a uh, clinic near my house And the rest was history. I just fell in love with the whole thing. That's how it began. All right. So, so you weren't five years old, but uh, you still figured it pretty early, at least in college that you were interested. I always loved animals, but my whole family was allergic. So (laughs) I was allowed one cat and I should have known I was just enamored with everybody else's animals. So, um, But working at the vet clinic really helped it. And I, I would always call that vet several times a year and say, thank you for taking a chance on me. Um, And that's what made the difference. That's nice. So how is vet school for you? I love vet school. Absolutely loved it. Now, back then uh, we had a very small class. There were about, um, I think we graduated 57 And of those, uh, about 15 were women. So uh, that was before the tide turned. And I was told in the interview process, quote unquote, that I would be taking a place away from a man 
who would be supporting his family with that income and that uh, I had better be sure and give back to my profession because they were taking a chance on me to take that spot from a male. And I said, okay. And so that's why I have been very um, cognizant of my debt to the profession. So I wanted to make sure that uh, I did them proud. Wow. Wow. So you've really seen a lot of transition in our, in our uh, profession for sure. Oh yeah. To the point, um, my first job, which, uh, lasted about six months because you never know what you're getting into till you're going to work every day. But, uh, we were having a casual discussion, the boss and I, and, uh, I said something about, yes, we're planning on having a family. And he goes, well, just so you know, the minute you're pregnant, I will fire you. And, uh, I said, why? And he goes, well, you're no good to me if you can't take x-rays, if you can't lift animals, if you, um, uh, you know, if you can't be around anesthesia and certain drugs. So, you know, I would have the perfect right to fire you. Wow. The, yeah. the, the, that's different times now for sure. It sure is. Isn't wow. It? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, so, I mean, since we're talking about this, uh, I mean, what, what was that transition like? I mean, what was it? Cause now it is the complete opposite where we've more like have the, the 15 males going through vet school. So do you remember what was there something in particular that really changed the tide on the, the thought process around women coming into this profession? As I recall, Um, A lot of it was that the pay, unless you were a practice owner, just uh, was hard to make a living from as a vet. The old model was you got out of school, you went to work for a vet. The vet was a guy, his wife was usually the business or the practice manager. And uh, this is exactly how it was when I went out of school. The, The husband was the vet. Uh, the wives were always the practice managers and handled the money. And then if you were lucky, they would decide to sell you part of the practice. And um, then finally, after several years, you would buy them out. And that purchase was their retirement. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's not like that anymore. I think part of it is the younger generation were more concerned about quality of life uh, spending more time at home, um, shorter work days. And, um, I think that the woman could be considered a supplemental income, not having to, uh, bring home as much that started to tip the scale. And then that's about the time corporate veterinary medicine started, because I think they found out that now I was a co-owner of the clinic, but, um, not, uh, a lot of my women, uh, vet friends. Well, actually in my day, yes, quite a few of us did own practices, but as time went on, the next generation of females really didn't want the burden of owning a practice. So, uh, it suited them just fine to, you know, work an eight to five job. Well, I laugh, 
Uh, but I remember when I was still interviewing students uh, before I sold my practice, um, it was very important to them to have an emergency clinic. Asking uh, a new grad to take emergencies was just unheard of. And uh, we were in a small town. So luckily, two uh, emergency clinics did form in nearby towns. And so we were able to do that. And I remember the transition of that was, was hard because in a small town, people would just show up on your doorstep. But anyway, that transition, I think there were many factors in there. So more of just quality of life and what people were looking at for careers. So, you know, you've mentioned now that you became a a practice owner and did you experience some interesting things being still kind of being in the female, we're still getting used to females being in these types of roles. Did you have any interesting experiences there? Sure. The next practice, when I did um, uh, become pregnant, uh, we moved to another town for uh, my husband's uh, practice at the time. And um, so a, uh, another vet heard about me and his, um, his uh, use of me was to, quote unquote, keep the pregnant girl in the back. Okay, so I stayed in the back. No, I did not take x-rays. I was exposed to um, anesthesia back then. It was metaphane and halothane, but um, we just made sure we had good scavenger systems and um, uh, didn't have any problem, but I only came out and saw clients on his afternoon off and on Saturday mornings, the rest of the time, no one ever saw me. Oh, wow. And then after I had the baby, he was so desperate. He called me back. And so one afternoon a week, I would go in and I would do all his surgeries for him. And uh, he stayed out front. So no one ever knew that I was doing the surgeries. So how long did that one last? (laughs) Well, it was just until uh, my husband at the time and I decided to purchase a clinic. Uh, I think I worked relief for one more vet after that. And um, then we purchased the clinic. So uh, that's where I spent all my time. And it was kind of a a country clinic at the time. They did not have, uh, I don't know if I should say this. You might want to cut this out. (laughs) Uh, They, all the, uh, uh, the, the old geezers might get a kick out of it. Um, anesthesia was taping uh, penethal or suratal in a syringe into the leg because uh, we didn't have an anesthesia machine. Um, didn't have an autoclave. When we came there, they did. They boiled the instruments. Um, oh, there were there were lots of things that were different. But as soon as the clinic was ours, we immediately. Uh, got the uh, x-ray and anesthesia machine. Oh, good. Upgrade that real fast. Oh yeah. (laughs) We sure did. Oh, wow. Um, so what was owning a practice like for you? Well, I, I looked at it as kind of a challenge and I enjoyed it. 
to see all the ways we could upgrade and practice the kind of medicine that we wanted to. It was a small town and we were a mixed practice. And so um, uh, we were primarily known as the horse and cow doctor and only the people who had horses and cattle brought their small animal, uh, small animals into us, but we worked really hard, changed that around. And by the time we purchased a new facility, I would say it was about 10 or 15 years later, we had made such a turnaround that, um, we were chosen as one of the, um, uh, veterinary economics, what do they call it? Practice of excellence. They chose about five clinics from across the country. So we were chosen as a practice of excellence because of the work we had done turning it around financially and, uh, you know, by the um, recommendations of our fellow vets. So we were very proud of that. Oh, wow. So you said that that ward is based on the referrals from fellow veterinarians? Well, as I recall, you had to have letters of recommendation from your fellow vets. You had to submit your financial spreadsheet and show what you had come from and what you had made it to. That was originally sponsored by Pfizer in conjunction with Bet Economics. So I don't even know if that still exists anymore, but they were always written up in Bet Economics magazine. And just your attitude about practice. They interviewed us very thoroughly about how we treated our staff and um, tone of professionalism that we maintained. So were you able to maintain a lot of good relationships with other veterinarians during this time? Oh, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. Yes, it wasn't a competitive thing at all. I remember in um, especially one of the towns we were close to, Tyler, Everybody worked together and helped each other out. And even within our small town, if somebody ran out of a drug or something, we would lend back and forth. Oh, wow. So, yeah. We was, do have a really was, cool community. <laughs> yeah. You know, now that we're, we're talking about maintaining relationships with other veterinarians and then just listening to your experience, which I hope that other veterinarians never have to go through, um, how was mentorship for you and leaving vet school? We would like to thank our sponsor, Vet Badger, the all-in-one practice management software that puts relationships first. Created by working veterinary parents, Vet Badger provides all the communication, team workflow, and medical management tools you need to run an efficient practice and get home to the relationships that matter most. In support of parents in Vet Med, Vet Badger will be offering a signed copy of the book, Pregnancy and Postpartum Considerations for the Veterinary Team by Emily Singler to everyone who registers for a demo between Mother's Day, May 12th, and Father's Day, June 16th. To register, visit vetbadger.com and find the link in the description below. Well, um, thank goodness I had worked in um, some wonder, uh, wonderful practices. I One of the practices I worked in as a preceptor, the owner of the practice was the president of AHA at the time. And uh, we actually formed the first student chapter of AHA 
at that time, there was only, your only choices on extracurricular clubs were bovine and equine, maybe small ruminants. Yeah, I think they had a small ruminants club, but that was pretty much it. So AHA became the small animal group and Oklahoma State had the very first chapter. Wow. So yeah, that was fun. And then after the individuals I told you about, in the mix there, I worked at a fantastic clinic until I did um, move from that town. And I, I will say that was Shelly Drive Animal Clinic in Tyler, Texas. And Dr. Arnold was the owner at the time, and he taught us the art of practice. And there is an art to it. It's not just medicine. It's not just business. There is a balance. Anyway, he was just a, a wonderful, wonderful man. His uh, partner at the time, Dr. Maris, is still in practice. Oh, wow. So shout out to you, Mike Maris. <laughs> I have noticed a trend in a lot of these conversations that it was a lot of the ones people remember were actually, it was a, a practicing veterinarian that just gave them, um, they, they felt heard and seen and like they were given an opportunity, even if it was just to work alongside them um, and be taught. So I think that goes to show that maybe that's not an official mentorship, but we can do a lot for future veterinarians just by allowing them to, to feel heard and seen and, you know, work in our clinics and, and give them kindness. So I am glad that we continue that tradition in our profession for sure. Well, and uh, we mentored lots and lots of kids uh, in our practice that we owned, really enjoyed it. And uh, I don't think we had anyone continue to vet school, but I am very proud of those kids. And uh, when I left that practice, they would still come back and visit, you know, when they were in town for their hometown, they'd always come by to say hello. I think we had uh, all kinds of professions come out of there, but uh, we were very proud of those kids. Now you were talking about just the, the club dynamics in, in vet school. So going through vet school for you, was it very heavily, even on the academic side, more on the large and food animal side of veterinary medicine? Well, I can tell you nutrition, that's the only nutrition course we had was balancing cattle rations, determining the quality of, of uh, hay and that kind of thing. We had no small animal nutrition at all. So isn't it ironic? I ended up working for a nutrition company. Well, sadly, neither did I. So <laughs> um, we were still trying to change some of the, the nutrition in academia, but uh, um, it is funny how our careers go. So since you mentioned that, um, what, there, what was kind of the transition from practice ownership into now? I'm sure there's, there's some, some bridges in there. Oh, sure. Well, I had never intended to sell the practice, but my partner was my husband at the time. And when we underwent a divorce, it became clear that the practice uh, partnership there needed to dissolve. So I moved back to my hometown. I, it actually just fell into my lap. I had a friend who was called up for Desert Storm and uh, she was the director of a tech, uh, technician school at a junior college. 
So they didn't ask me to come and be the director, but they did ask me to teach her courses. And she taught medicine, surgery, and of all things, microbiology. Well, on the great um, career path, I actually graduated with a degree in medical technology and went on to become a a certified medical technologist. And so I worked in a hospital for two years, saving up money so that I could go to, to vet school. Anyway, I was able to step into her shoes. And then when she came back from Desert Storm, I think it was Desert Storm. But anyway, she was in the reserve. So it was a war that made her get called up. After she came back, I uh, had been doing relief at clinics, so I went to work for a couple of classmates, and then I, when I was still in private practice, I was approached by a drug company to help them market a, a heartworm drug, the injectable heartworm drug, when it first came out, and I just really enjoyed it because it gave you an opportunity to teach and to travel and to be a little creative in the PowerPoints that you would do. And I just had a blast with that. And I thought, you know, if I could ever get a a job doing this full time, it would be fun. So that's when I saw, while I was working for my classmates, I saw an ad and applied for it and got the job with Royal Canaan. And boy, did I get to travel. I was just so excited because um, I had never been outside of the United States, save one one weekend trip to Mexico, but got to go to our headquarters in France. I um, did some talks in uh, Trinidad, Tobago. I worked at a vet conference in Hong Kong. I mean, just just, uh, opportunities I never dreamed I would have. I would still be, you know, doing small town veterinary medicine. So I, I just had a blast. Although uh, my classmates kid me, they say, are you still peddling dog food? Which is not what I do, but uh, (laughs) you know, because the, uh, the true, the true calling of our class was, you know, to practice. Yes. I get some teasing about that. Yes. And so one of the reasons for this podcast is the, the ability to be really creative with your skills and your interest and, and really making your career that is fun and exciting for each individual. And so I, I think that's still probably a very similar mindset that I go to vet school, then I go out and I go into practice. So how did you deal with some of the, the teasing on doing a, a career path that was extremely um, untraditional at the, at the time? I had actually, as I said, I majored medical technology. I also double majored in um, journalism. So I love to write. And of all things, when we won the Practice of Excellence Award, they asked me to come on as an advisory board member for veterinary economics. And so this meant that I was asked to write articles about the industry Uh, I also answered questions and advice uh, advice columns, you know, like someone was having a problem with associates, what they they should do or how to handle this type of situation. So I never strayed too far from uh, writing. And in fact, I wrote all the uh, handouts 
for our clinic. I personally, I mean, because we didn't have them back then. There just weren't many to be had. So I wrote our own and I enjoyed that. And the transition, the funny thing is I, you know, it's lighthearted teasing when they ask me if I'm still peddling dog food. But when I'm at a conference, you would be amazed at how many vets uh, will come up to me and say, how do I get your job? Because it is, it is a cool job. And I have to think I did miss private practice a lot. And the difference here is that you've got a dog or a cat in front of you, you pretty much get instant gratification. You remove a mass, you do a spay, um, you treat it for parvo and it gets well. You've got instant gratification, you know, very quickly if you're successful. In an industry job, um, a lot of times you don't see the, the fruits of your labor. Perhaps you go out and you do a talk and people become more knowledgeable, say, about a hepatic diet, okay? And you may not ever see uh, the results from what you did, but uh, eventually you do get feedback. It's just a long time coming. So that's been one of the more challenging things about the, the transition? I think so, because, uh, and I still, for the first... Um, I would say for the first five or seven years that I worked for Royal Canaan, since I was traveling so much, I actually made a deal with one of my classmates uh, who owned a clinic and uh, we traded out boarding for my dogs and I worked on uh, Saturdays and holidays for him for free. So we worked it out that way. So that still let me keep my hand in things. And then when I left uh, that state and remarried and moved to a town where I wasn't as familiar with the veterinarians, I decided, well, it's time to focus, um, you know, not spend all my spare time working. So, yeah, but I guess I was kind of a workaholic in a small way. I always, <laughs> I always knew when enough was enough, but uh, I did enjoy private practice. It was different enough. Maybe it balanced out kind of your, your activities and how has your role really evolved being an in industry? Well, um, with our company, uh, when I was hired, we had four veterinarians and we covered the whole country. We were, uh, field vets. Okay. Scientific services vets. And over the years, it's grown now to where, I, I don't have the number, but I'm sure we have at least 20 veterinarians. Back then, we handled the schools, the tech schools, private practices, corporate entities. We did it all, and there was only four of us for the whole United States. So we were pretty much on the road most of the time. And then as the company evolved, we got to be a little bit more specialized, and after a while, uh, although I did enjoy so much going to the field, I liked going into the different vet clinics and visiting with the vets and hearing about how their lives were in the different areas of the country. And I really enjoyed riding with our salesmen and learning more about them and their areas. But um, after that, I transitioned into a job that was more national accounts and held that for a while. And then of all things, 
journalism and advertising came in handy because I went to the marketing team and I love that because uh, I, here's an ironic thing. In undergrad, I was taking an advertising class and we had to write a term paper and I wrote my term paper on medical advertising. <laughs> and who knew that it would ever come around to where I was actually creating and editing advertising in the veterinary medical profession. That is just too ironic, <laughs> but there are no coincidences, I guess. It was all meant to be, but I, I enjoyed that. And now I have, over the years, I have become more and more passionate about the plight of the veterinarians as far as mental wellness goes. Sadly, I've lost more than a few colleagues and friends by taking their own lives due to the stress of practice. And um, so that encouraged me. I, what is the word? Anyway, inspired? Inspired me, thank you, <laughs> to check out the University of Tennessee College of Social Work because their social work program is very closely integrated with the vet school. And they actually offer a certificate for veterinarians and certified techs called the Veterinarian Human Support Certificate, where you study for about a year and you study about the stresses of practice, animal cruelty, the grief phenomenon between clients and their pets. There, you even study domestic abuse situations because often the animal is held hostage in domestic uh, violence. And that's what creates a environment for the abused spouse not to leave home because either they can't take the pet with them or the, um, the abusing spouse will say, I'm just going to kill it if you leave. Uh, really horrible stories coming out of that. But you got a very thorough education of the role that social workers can play in a veterinary clinic environment. And so I took that training and came out and I was doing a lot of um, creating a lot of mental wellness resources through our marketing department where I was a part of. And now I, uh, that's all I do is work on creating mental wellness tools, giving webinars, arranging CE events, that sort of thing. Because I think we need to get the word out there. There's too much of a stigma about mental wellness mm -hmm. and uh, uh, we need to erase that and help people recognize when they are suffering from depression or stress and encourage them to get the help they need. Yeah, this may seem like a silly question, but when you were talking about all the things you learned in this one-year program, it sounds like, I mean, that's a lot to, to handle, just learning about all the, the challenges how, how did they do that? And you not like eat a pound of chocolate a day or, or, you know, like what was something that you learned maybe from the way they taught it? Like, can you elaborate well, on that? In any of the online courses that we took or whether they were live webinars or pre-recorded, you were always encouraged to take a moment for self-care mm -hmm. and they were very big on that. Personally, 
you know, I was old school and I told them, I said, well, I'm not into the touchy feely meditation stuff. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And they go, that's fine. But um, what I came to find out was when you're talking about self-care and just moments of meditation and deep breathing and those kind of things, that can also have a religious connotation. So whether you're focusing on deep breathing, you're praying, whatever, it's all kind of the same thing. And they are very, very, uh, they stress self-care a lot. And I think a lot of the times we think of self-care as taking yourself to a spa, you know, having massages and all that stuff. And that's not what it is at all. It's just looking out for yourself so that you're then able to take care of others because you can't do that unless you take care of yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Put your own oxygen mask on first. There you go. <laughs> Uh, so what are some of the things that really keep you going uh, while you get to really focus on this particular topic, which is, I, I think is a very unique position. I don't know how many veterinarians get to focus entirely on this really important topic. So what are some things that you're I'm learning? Really lucky. Yeah. Um, well, it is very gratifying and the feedback is more instantaneous it's kind of like being back in private practice because you are talking to live people right in the moment um, you have to be careful though because some of the subject matter can get pretty heavy mm -hmm. i my self-care is enjoying my my new granddaughter who is seven months old mm -hmm. you can just look at that little face and everything else melts away i'm an avid gardener tennis and pickleball swimming because there's several parts to mental health so not only is physical health important but uh, emotional health and spiritual health financial health okay you've got to have um i could go down the list and various uh entities will publish lists of like five pillars of mental wellness or seven or whatever, but you kind of have to balance it all. And I have to be very careful when I'm working on a presentation, I'm doing one now that it's grieving, but typical grieving, you think at some point you will heal and have closure. And in the days of COVID, and all the things that have happened and that are going on in the world right now, sometimes there are instances where you don't have closure and that makes healing hard. And you've got to learn to adapt to that or you will just spiral into a dark place. And we're all exposed to it, but you need to be aware of it. And my, my favorite quote is, if you name it, you can tame it. So if you realize that something in practice is upsetting you or something in your life is upsetting you, or if you have the same thoughts and feelings uh, repetitively, there is probably a name, a description for what you're going through and there are ways to deal with it. Just like you cannot treat an animal until you make a diagnosis, you cannot feel better until you figure out what is wrong that's making you feel bad. 
And many times we can't do that for ourselves. And that's when it's important to call in a mental health professional. And they can usually put a name on it. And you think, oh, is that what it is? And then knowing that other people have had the very same problem, that can immediately perk you up. And then you, you uh, go on your way and figure out how to deal with it. Yeah, definitely. When you realize you're not alone, I think that's, that's helpful for sure. And then are you a Brene Brown fan? Yes. Thinking about her as, as you're talking, she talks a lot about grief and her podcast is, was great to listen to through the pandemic as well. She, she has a couple and then her most recent book, Atlas of the Heart, she talks about the importance of putting a vocabulary behind our emotions and that mm-hmm. where it's a lot more than just happy, sad, and mad, which is usually the only emotions people can list. It's much more dynamic than that. When you can start to put a name to it, understand it, and what it's like for you, that's the some of the first stepping stones to, to healing and, and working through it. I love her books and, um, and let's face it, veterinarians are pretty smart people. Mm-hmm. Given the information, if we give them just enough to work with and they realize that this, this can be a problem that is, needs diagnosis and management, just because it's in the, in the brain and not a physical ailment should not make a difference. I agree very much so. So what are some of the things that you want to see in the next five years in the profession? Well, here's my personal prediction, and I could be way off base, but the University of Tennessee is turning out classes and classes of veterinary social workers. So these are master's degree counselors who have already had, you know, the social work training, but now they have been refined into Uh, knowing about the veterinary profession. And one young lady I'm working with is a tech at a VCA clinic, but she's also, she's earned her master's degree and now she's working on um, her counseling certification. But at the end of the year, she will be a veterinary social worker. So my prediction is when I graduated, there was no such thing as a designated practice manager it was the wife of whoever owned the clinic, or it was a bookkeeper, something like that. So we didn't used to have practice managers, and now we do. I think there will be more of a social work worker type person, whether it be a therapist, somebody who's under contract, who will be aligned with each clinic, so that if they have a grieving client, then they can intercede and take that burden off the veterinary staff so they can treat animals and let this person deal with a client. Same thing in domestic abuse situations. What do you do if you see uh, an abused animal come in or the owner with a black eye? Does the veterinarian, they often get caught in the middle. What do you do? We didn't have training on that, but wouldn't it be nice to have someone who knows all the resources or can even counsel them on finances? Maybe they know of different places where the where there are funds available to help these people who can't afford a certain treatment. 
just taking a further load off the veterinarians so that we can practice medicine and surgery, let the practice manager handle the economics of it and let a trained professional help with the emotions. Another thing that this was very important in is uh, something I've become aware of called a debriefing section session. So if, if there is an unexplained or unplanned death in a clinic, like suppose an animal quits breathing during surgery, in the human world, they have more, believe it's morbidity and mortality rounds, okay? M&M they go rounds. through, <laughs> huh? M&M M&M rounds, yeah. Yeah. And they go through, you know, each detail of the case to try to dissect what happened. And not only do you need to do that for these cases, but you also need to understand the people's emotions that are involved. I can think of one that didn't relate to an animal, but our clinic faced a, a major highway and with large picture windows. And one day, I think we were just all, we had a break and we were visiting out in the lobby and we looked up and a little boy had tried to cross the highway on his bicycle and was hit. So, right. So we pulled out the oxygen machine. We called that, you know, we were involved in that child's care and he, he ended up being just injured. Okay. Uh, He survived, but it had a dramatic effect on everyone and a debriefing session would have been very helpful. And also to take time to, to, you know, evaluate who's got CPR training, who, you know, who would do this in case of a, um, of an emergency. So there, I just predict that there will be more mental health professionals involved closely with vet clinics in the future. Oh, I sure hope so. And, and I've, I've actually seen little early signs of that as well. I know several vet schools have some type of counselor or something. I still remember them. Uh, often it was to be there for pet owners who are having to go through a loss of a pet, but I think they, they often were, were willing to help a vet student or something that pull them aside, that kind of thing. I, I love the idea of expanding that, making that the norm to not just vet schools, but also in actual practices, that would be very exciting for sure. Right. Now, Blue Pearl, Banfield, VCA, all of them have departments of mental wellness, and they do have social workers and other type counselors on staff for employees. And then some of the larger specialty clinics, especially the ones who have 24-hour care, who are under so much stress, they also have been privately contracting with uh, social workers. So even if it wasn't a full-time person, just having someone on call to maybe run a staff meeting, do a debriefing session, make appointments with um, uh, employees, I just think would really turn the tide. We've done a survey. I'm actually sitting working on air right now. We had about 170 responses. Uh, it was a survey we did amongst veterinarians, techs, and practice managers. The sad thing is many of them have access to, access to resources, but the majority don't take advantage of them. And the independent ones 
are the ones who are really having to reach out because they do not have a corporation backing them who can automatically provide these. So that's where Royal Canaan is really trying to step in. And Mars Veterinary Health has been very gracious. Uh, that involves VCA, Banfield, and Blue Pearl in sharing their resources that are already created and letting us adapt them and circulate and share them with independent clinics. We're basically all in this together and nobody wants to see the stress, turnover, burnout, loss of life that we're currently seeing now. Absolutely. So what recommendation would you give to veterinarians in, in their career right now? If they were interested in, in transitioning out of practice, what, what advice would you give them? Well, um, follow their heart. Okay. There must be something in there that makes them smile. I have a very good friend who has been practicing as long as I have. She's practicing now two days a week and she does a lot of therapy dog work. So she has trained therapy dogs and she spends a lot of time in children's hospitals and, um, assisted living facilities. And that is her passion whether it's that, whether it's writing, perhaps volunteering with a scouting group, maybe it's going back to agriculture. The vet I mentioned uh, who taught me the art of practice kept cattle, okay, and that was like his release. You know, he loved to go out and work his cattle. So as far as transitioning into a paying job from practice jobs, I say the, the list is endless on what you can do. You just need to explore the back of journals. You know, there's always ads, you know, what maybe you want to go into teaching. Maybe that's, uh, I enjoyed teaching at the tech school. I really, and that was an instant gratification thing. And I know a lot of vets who did teach at the tech school. So um, I know other vets who taught something totally different, uh, but I think, Vets are kind of, a lot of them are born teachers because we've had to instruct clients on so many things and educate them about the heartworm cycle and about the flea cycle. I think teaching is another good, good option. Yeah. And I like how you gave a lot of different examples of, of teaching, even if it's to a scout group or back to how you really felt like you were being able to mentor and teach and support the, maybe the high school students who would come and work at your clinic. I think all of those could be opportunities, even if it's creating a, a special class once a week for the hospital. If you wanted to teach something, I think there are a lot of ways you can implement teaching. So I like that a lot. Yeah. All right. So we are, are getting close to the end, but before I always want to make sure I leave some space. Is there anything that you wish I'd asked or you want to, to say to the veterinary profession? Well, if you are struggling right now, I would like to tell you to hang in there. Don't be afraid to talk to a trusted friend about feelings that you're having uh, one of the examples I use in the webinars that I do weekly is that uh, my friend I told you about who's now working 
two days a week and doing therapy dogs. Okay. She has been my best friend in the vet profession for 40 years. And it is so important to have somebody to talk to. Like I can understand when she tells me if a surgery didn't go like I, uh, like she planned, or if a client was upset with me over something, she totally gets that. And uh, we haven't worked in the same practice in 40 years, but we still call each other and are good friends and we go to conferences together. So we are constantly um, sounding boards for each other. The other thing I say is both of us have seen a therapist when needed. I certainly had to go see one after my divorce. Okay. And she had one for other reasons, but um, the fact that we're 40 years into it, we're still enjoying what we do. We didn't have to just throw away all the education and the time and the money that cost. So don't be afraid to seek out a therapist or someone. It's so ironic that a lady I'm in a, a social group with, she's a family therapist. Out of the 12 clients she keeps, two of them are veterinarians. So good for them. Absolutely. Coming back to the community, we're in it together. You bet. <laughs> All right. So my final questions that I asked to wrap up the, the time together. Uh, first one is what is something that is on your bucket list? You mean career-wise or just life bucket list? Wise? My life bucket list? Yes. Well, I do want to, uh, do more traveling to national parks. Oh, nice. Do you have one in mind? No. Just any of the parks you like? Well, you it goes back to your um, eco roots, right? There you go. <laughs> I know it. I, I guess I want to return to that. Yes, I can understand that. What is a simple moment that brings you joy? Visiting with my granddaughter. Yep. I wondered if that was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> she is adorable. Yes. If you could create a law that everyone had to follow, what would your law be? It sounds so cliche, but you know, there's a golden rule to treat people as uh, you want to be treated yourself. Did you know there's also a platinum rule? And that is treat people how they want to be treated. So just take in mind another person's feelings and realize the world is not revolving around you, but uh, to try to be mindful of other people's feelings. Amen. And finally, what is something that you are most grateful for? I am most grateful for my family yes. and my friends. <laughs> It sounds like you've had a very good friend group, and I really hope that for everybody. And um, if, if there are people out there who don't have as close of a friend group, go find them. Don't be afraid. Uh, there's very amazing people in our profession, and I, I think we all really want to support each other. I think you're right. <laughs> Well, thank you for taking the time to come and share your story. Uh, you had a really amazing journey, and I want to thank you also for all the ways that you give back, uh, especially with focusing on the mental well-being in the profession. So thank you. 
Well, good. Wherever my interview committee is now, I'm pretty sure most of them have passed on. I hope they heard you say that. (laughs) (laughs) This has been the Vet Life Reimagined podcast. Whether you are listening or watching on YouTube, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure you are subscribed to catch all these amazing people in our profession. Also, send this episode to someone you think who would appreciate it. Have a recommendation for someone who would be a good guest? Please reach out on LinkedIn, Instagram, or Facebook. There aren't that many Dr. Sprinkles. Until next time, vet lifers.